You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today we are welcoming Rosalie LaHaye-Hara to the podcast. Rosalie is a certified pediatric and newborn sleep consultant, and I must say, I've sought out a sleep consultant for you guys because my DMs on Instagram are filled with questions about how can I make my baby sleep? How can we get some sleep? We are desperate for more sleep. And trust me, I have been there and I certainly do not have all the answers. I learned a little bit along the way and my boys became better sleepers as I went. But today you're going to learn some really practical things to help all of you get more sleep. Have you ever gotten to a place in your motherhood journey where you have unpacked information or new knowledge that is just so powerful you wish you had it in those early stages of motherhood? I feel like that's been my whole journey over this past year as I've been specializing in maternal mental health and having all of these experts on that have shed such light on the podcast around all of these issues, but especially when it comes to baby sleep. Rosalie is so helpful in giving you permission to do some things with baby sleep that are just so important, but then nobody really talks to us about. So this is a really important episode. I hope you guys get a lot out of it. And let's get to the review of the week. This week's review comes from Anna Straisner. It's titled Love. Loving this podcast, Erica is so relatable. And in her introduction episode, she makes you realize we are in this together. You are normal. You are loved. You are worthy. Thanks for this. Guys, if I had one solo mission on this podcast, it would be to help you know that you are not alone. And it makes me so happy to hear that these episodes are relatable and that they're having an impact and they're resonating with you. So thank you so much for this review. I love it. I would love it if you guys would take a moment, drop me some feedback, leave me a review and let me know uh, if you're out there and if you're hearing this and how you're liking it. Okay, without further ado, let's hear my conversation with Rosalie. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Rosalie, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I actually found you via Mr. Google and then found out you are like my home girl from the GTA. And I'm so excited that we get to spend this time together and I get to pick your brain. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So from what I understand, getting to know you a little bit, you spent lots of time, went through all kinds of schooling, were in public 
healthcare policy, if I'm getting that right. Yeah. And then here you are, a person who helps restore people's sleep and slumber. <laughs> How, like, tell me about this journey. How did you get from where you were kind of in the corporate government environment to running your own business in this way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a similar story to lots of moms or parents who have had children and then completely changed their perspective on life in general. Um, so yeah, so, so so I'm a mom of two. So I've got Sophia, who's six and a half, and Nadette just turned four. Aww. And when Sophia was born, she was a pretty unhappy baby, unfortunately. So, you know, that transition into parenthood is already a pretty difficult one for some, uh, for some parents, and that was true for us as well. But in addition to being new parents, she was just unhappy. I mean, the pediatrician and the midwives called her severely colicky. And we know that, you know, colic is just sort of this label that we put on these unhappy babies that are adjusting to life and, you know, crying a lot. And we had a couple of sessions where she would cry for hours and hours a day. You know, I, I, definitely remember a 16 uh, hour session of her not being consoled. Oh, um, and yeah, it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty dark time. And I remember kind of thinking like, why didn't my friends tell me that it was like this? You know, my friends who'd already had babies, not realizing that this wasn't really the normal average experience of a first time parent with yeah. a baby. He would cry and cry and cry. And one of the features of colic, so now in my practice, I work with colic and post-colicky babies. And one of the features of colic is that, you know, it doesn't matter what you try to do to soothe that baby, they're not consolable, right? So you could be bouncing, you could be popping them in the carrier, you could be doing all sorts of things, gymnastics and acrobatics to try to yeah. get them to calm, but they just won't, right? So they're having a really difficult time, no underlying medical issues, just having a, a difficult time adjusting. So, so essentially, you know, that experience, um, even though she started to you know, what I call give back at around the three month mark, started to smile and giggle and give back a little bit. Um, her sleep is really, really bad as well. So really disrupted, you know, we had to put a ton of time into getting her to sleep, she'd sleep for 45 minutes at a time um, at night, and then, you know, would barely nap during the day. And the other part of this is I have a chronic illness. Um, that means that sleep is even more important to me. So mm. basically, if I don't get sleep, I can't function as a parent, I literally can't function. And so that to me is not an acceptable alternative. Um, and so we sort of white knuckled it for a while. And then when she was about six months old, we said, my husband and I said, we can't do this anymore. Um, her sleep was still really, really disrupted. So we hired a sleep consultant and essentially our lives changed. And I don't hmm. put that lightly. <laughs> it's like yeah. our entire lives changed. Um, you know, we felt like we could enjoy parenthood. We had time together again. She was really happy from being well rested. And so our whole lives changed. And essentially that experience um, got me really, really interested in the science behind sleep, uh, particularly infant and toddler sleep, of course. And mm -hmm. I studied, I trained, I became certified. Um, I'm now certified both in pediatric sleep, so the first six years of life, but I'm also specifically certified in newborn sleep. I love working with newborns, and we can talk mm -hmm. about that too if you like, but mm -hmm. there's so many things we can do in the newborn stage that are very, very gentle and respectful and gradual and all the rest of it, but also really great um, that help us get more sleep. And um, and yeah, I started my business, Baby Sleep Love, and 
that, you know, that was it. Yeah, and here we are. <laughs> not like, turned back. And I love that. Yeah. I love that you have that like background and that thirst for, you know, the science and the research because I very much um, like sleep consultants and I'm just going to like level with you for a second. There are some out there that are sleep consultants who, um, you know, you sort of question some of the credentials or are very, very aligned to a particular value system of their own that they think is very important. Mm -hmm. And so it is hard um, in my mind from a professional perspective to find um, sleep experts that you can really like trust and believe in, right? Yes. Um, so so this was so important to me in trying to find someone and here we are. Thank you, Google. And I'm so excited. <laughs> but uh, But for those who are sort of unsure what their sleep values are, I would urge you to go back to episode 21 of mine, Making Informed Decisions Around Baby Sleep, where uh, with Dr. Elizabeth Adams and I, we go through the research, what the outcomes are for those who sleep train versus those who co-sleep, what it has to say so that you can come to your own decision-making around sleep and what you and your family will value around sleep. So I've already laid the foundation kind of weighing those options and you're free to choose to either go sleep or have independent sleepers in your house. That's that's your choice as parent. Uh, and today specifically, we are going to talk about how to foster independent sleep in our home. So, and I'm so excited and I love that you are really passionate about the baby stage because holy smokes, we know new moms need sleep. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I just never was able to truly feel like I was myself. Like I, I couldn't feel basically human <laughs> when I wasn't getting sleep. I mean, sleep deprivation felt like torture for me and it does for a lot of the people that I work with. And that, you know, that totally makes sense. Uh, we yeah. need sleep. We need sleep to feel healthy and to, and to, and as a baby to develop and grow as well. So it's important for the whole family. And I like what you said, Erica, because I really pride myself on being flexible. So meaning yeah. that I want to meet the families that I work with, where they're at, right? So where are you at? Where would you like to be? Not where mm -hmm. I want you to be, but where would you like to be? And how can we get you there in ways that feel best for you, right? That fit with your lifestyle, your comfort level. Um, I am not the person that said you that says you absolutely must do this or you shouldn't do that. That's just not my style. So right. I really yeah. liked what you said there. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And like, I can't imagine your experience as a first time mom having a baby that's had a 16 hour, you know, colicky <laughs> and, and as as a new mom, especially ones that are so at risk and vulnerable to postpartum and depression, as many of us are, you know, postpartum, how much you must feel like, oh my gosh, I'm failing this baby. I cannot help them. I cannot soothe them. I cannot, you know, make them feel better. And sleep becomes so tied into our sort of like worth and guilt and whether we're failing or succeeding as a parent. And it can become almost like a badge of honor, like, oh, look, my baby sleeping and or what is that person doing that they can't get their baby to sleep and it becomes this sort of like like a marker for comparison and you know it, yes. it's like a badge and that's just simply not not um like not the case it's not valid in the sense that every baby and baby's needs are different and we can go through I know that you're going to address some of the myths today mm -hmm. but it's like 
babies are different. Temperaments are different. Babies' needs are different. Parents' needs and sleep needs are different. Like every family I'm sure that you work with has a different set of criteria that makes up their their sleeping plan, right? Exactly. Exactly. I always say there's 50 to 100 plus different factors that relate to any single family's sleep circumstances. So of course that mix of factors is going to be different from family to family. Yeah. And I just kind of put that out there from the gecko to say like, mama, if you're listening and your babe is not sleeping, that does not mean that you are failing, you know? And today we're here to help with some of the basics to kind of get you started. And if those things don't kind of help out, then then you can pursue a sleep consultant or look further, but you are able to problem solve and it's not about you not doing a good enough job, you know? Absolutely. Totally 100% agree. (laughs) Yeah. So can we start with some of the sleep training myths? Because I know that sleep training is like gets all the hate in the world these days. So can Mm -hmm. we unpack what those might look like? Yeah. And I talk about these all the time. I love talking about these and I love busting these myths as well. So, I mean, one really big myth that I hear the most often is that a quote unquote good sleeper is a baby who doesn't wake up overnight to eat. Mm. So that's the one I hear the most often. And obviously, you know, here I'm talking specifically about overnight feedings, not necessarily waking up every 45 minutes to an hour, the kind of wakings that we probably can do something about. Um, But it's a good, you know, it's a good thing to understand that even when you've established what we call independent sleep skills, so what we're talking about today, when we've got a little one who is falling asleep independently at the beginning of the night. So at bedtime, which basically sets the tone for the night, even that A plus 10 out of 10 independent sleeper could still need to wake up overnight to eat. And that's just hunger, right? Hunger is about hunger. It's not a failure of sleep skills. It's not anything that you're doing wrong. If there's a baby who is waking up to eat, they're clearly hungry, and then they're settling right back down to sleep, there is nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also nothing wrong with wanting to help them sleep through that time, but there's nothing wrong with a baby who wakes up overnight to eat. And we know that there are many, many babies, particularly in the first year of life, that are doing that. And that does not mean that they're not a good sleeper. Right. I love that one. It's so true because it sets a more realistic expectation like, you know, they they likely will often. Well, I had three humongous boys. <laughs> and, <laughs> and let me tell you, it was until they were a year old that they woke up for their kind of like one time middle of the night. And it's like when it was down to one time, I could manage that. They could manage that. They went right back to sleep and it worked for us, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it wasn't until around a year that they, they kind of let up on that a bit. So mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So some of the other myths that you encounter. Yeah. So another myth, and I know you wanted to cover this one as well, Erica, is that your baby needs to quote unquote cry it out in order to learn how to fall asleep on their own. Um, This one I think actually can be, it kind of can veer on being a damaging myth that is out there because a lot of parents are sort of left to think, you know, I either have to A, continue to be this sleep deprived mess and not feel, you know, the way that I would like to feel and perhaps feel that joy of parenting that a well-rested parent might feel. Mm -hmm. Or I have to, on the other hand, I would have to do something that maybe goes against my parenting instincts or makes me feel really uncomfortable in order to improve that. Mm 
Um, and that's absolutely not true. I always say this to clients, potential clients, whoever I'm speaking to in person workshops, there are literally hundreds of ways of helping your little one learn to fall asleep. And you can find a way that feels best, that feels comfortable. And by the way, if you're not feeling comfortable with whatever approach you are taking to get your little one to become a more independent sleeper, it's not going to work hundred percent mm, because mm-hmm. you're not going to be consistent. And we know that, you know, with anything to do with infant toddler preschooler habits, um, the more consistent that we are, um, the more that they catch up, they catch on, the more easily they catch on, the more quickly they catch on. So mm-hmm. We need to be consistent and we cannot. It's very hard for us to be consistent if we're applying something that seems to be, you know, so uncomfortable to us and kind of totally against our instincts, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. of course. And I think that like often in our minds, we equate the idea of sleep training with cry it out. And, you know, cry it out, according to research, is a quite um, like – useful method. And there's lots of different ideas and discrepancies about, you know, this method. But if that's Mm -hmm. a method that you choose to use, like that was the one our pediatrician recommended to us, you know, like Mm -hmm. in terms of sleep training and it's effective. And that is a choice that you have to you. But then there are also like all of these other um, sort of derivatives of, right, of methods for for sleep training as well. And again, whatever plan works for you is okay. Exactly. That's right. So I'm a big believer that each parent is doing the absolute best that they can. And they're always choosing for their family what they believe is best for their little ones. And if that's the case, then whatever approach you choose can never be a bad thing. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Before moving on, were there any other myths? Oh, yeah, there's so many. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So another one is that your baby needs to be on a strict sleep schedule to sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. I get that Mm -hmm. one a lot. And so when I talk about when I say the word strict sleep schedule, what comes to mind for me and for others when they think, oh, I've got to get my baby on this sleep schedule is that my baby has to sleep at these exact times of the day. And I have to somehow get them to sleep for these exact exact length of naps per day, Mm, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, not only can that feel overwhelming and impossible to achieve, but it's also not really based in science, right? In sleep science. So what we know is that if we follow these strict sleep schedules, and particularly for little ones who are on the younger end in that first year of life, so let's say within the first six months or so, we could be causing them to become overtired, right? So Everybody knows, or hopefully everybody knows, that we want a well-rested baby both during the day and at bedtime so that they have the best possible chance of sleeping well at night, right? Mm -hmm. So what we want to avoid are these kind of spikes in cortisol, the stress hormone throughout the day, but especially before bedtime, because that sort of gives your little one this second or third wind where they then become harder to settle and they become less likely to sleep well, right? More likely to wake up more frequently, take short apps, all the rest of it. Hmm. So the way that we get ahead of that is to make sure that we're following the timing that works best for them. And that's much more important than a specific schedule. So what I mean by that is, and a lot of people have heard of this concept already, 
is following age-appropriate wake windows. So those are magic, right? So these are the amounts of time that baby can spend being awake in one stretch before they get that shot of cortisol. Mm. And if we can land on the amounts of time that work best for our unique baby, then we're going to catch them before they get overtired. We're going to help them settle more easily and sleep for longer periods of time and become well-rested by the end of the day. So you absolutely do not need to be on a strict sleep schedule. And in fact, you don't even need baby to be in their crib or bassinet for naps either. As long as you're following the timing that works well for them, then you could be doing on the go naps in the day. And, you know, every family is different in terms of the type of lifestyle that they have, if they like to be really on the go, if they're traveling a lot, for example. And so this can feel like a big sigh of relief to people to hear, you know, that I don't need to be home all day for naps. I don't need my baby to be in the crib all day for naps. Certainly, if that's something you want to do, that is available to you, but you don't have to do that in order to get baby to sleep well at night. Hmm. I think that's a big one that I talk with moms about is like, that they are so, uh, especially like postpartum, if you're feeling anxious, very become very like rigid or very like fixated on baby's schedule, right? Yes. Um, making sure that all your outings are planned within the like two hour window that baby is awake and things like that. But as we talk about these independent skills and the fact that like baby can sleep other places and and that those aren't necessarily forming bad sleep habits, again, which we can talk about, mm-hmm. um, then maybe we can have some flexibility in that and still kind of resume some normalcy of life if that's something that you are wanting as a parent, right? Exactly. And especially when you have older siblings in the mix as well, you know, you might not be able to just be at home (laughs) for those naps. Totally. Mm -hmm. This is a really good time potentially to talk about when and how to tell like the baby is tired because I feel like with my boys well they're a little bit older now but like one gets tired and he gets like really lethargic and the other one shows like he gets wound up like a top and that's totally different but um, for like young baby cues or for moms paying attention to how to tell when their baby is tired. Yeah. So sleepy cues can actually be really tricky. So, uh, you know, sleepy cues are things like yawning, rubbing eyes, looking listless, having red rimmed eyes, and obviously, you know, crying and crankiness. These things can definitely signal that a baby is tired, but they may also signal for some babies that they're bored, they're hungry, or for any other reason. So Mm -hmm, they can mm -hmm. be tricky. And so while they're a really great thing to get to know for your unique baby, there's also this possibility that you have to keep an open mind about that they could be unreliable. Um, And more commonly, though, uh, you know, above and beyond them being possibly unreliable is that if we wait for those CPQs to crop up, we might have already waited beyond the time that they got overtired, if that makes sense. So this is one of the reasons that I you know, work with families on following age-appropriate wake windows and then use sleepy cues as an additional piece of information to help us determine if that baby is truly getting the time of, awa- you know, of being awake before they're asleep, if we're getting that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like this gets so much easier, obviously, as babies get older, right? They give us more data. (laughs) Like they give us more. um, Like even though I have an 18-month-old and obviously he can quite communicate a lot of things now. Uh, but surely like he, or if they go for their passy or they go for their lovey or whatever, like they, there is like no, 
no having to kind of study to really know it's much more clear as they get older. It's true. And actually, that's one of the things I've loved about setting up those really great sleep habits um, for our family, for my two little ones, is that now at six and a half and four, they know their bodies. They can tell me when they're tired. You know, um, they'll often tell me, you know, mommy, my body feels really tired this week. Maybe I don't go to dance tonight or something like that. I need to relax. Mm. Um, you know, my oldest one, she knits before bed to relax herself. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> Right. And so, yeah, for sure. At this age, they're so much more communicative and they're, you know, they they love their sleep um, because we've made it such a routine and and so important in this house. But yeah, for sure. When they're little, tiny little ones, we have to kind of figure out what they're trying to tell us. And certainly if we've got to the point of crankiness and crying and all the rest of it, you know, we're probably at that point or maybe beyond that point. So we just try to get ahead of that if we can. Yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. So we've mentioned sleep habits a few times. Can we mm-hmm. unpack what that really means for those who are listening? Yeah, for sure. So sleep habits really include anything that a baby does or needs uh, to get to sleep, right? So for example, a sleep habit could be my baby needs a dark room to feel calm enough to fall asleep, or my baby likes to fall asleep every X amount of hours. Um, my baby takes his best nap in his crib or in my arms or in the car, or my baby needs to be rocked or to be fed to go to sleep or falls asleep on their own, prefers to fall asleep on their own. Um, they're not, the thing that I want to um, you know, reinforce is that they're not inherently negative or positive, right? They're neutral. It's just, okay. this is what a baby does or needs to fall asleep. But it's the point at which a sleep habit, habit becomes Um, unsustainable or isn't working anymore for a parent that a family will come to me for help and say, I want to change this, right? I'm I'm ready to change this. Um, But a common misconception is that there's just like this point at which you have to change your little one's sleep habits. And that's just simply not true. I know that I thought a lot about, oh, well, if I do this, I'm setting a precedent. I feel like I thought about that more with the second one than with the first one. Because the first one, you don't realize you're setting a precedent and then you're <laughs> stuck in this like, oh my gosh, he needs me to sleep, you know? And then you, I, I well, at least I realized the second time around, like, you know. Um, so not that not that it's necessarily, especially in those newborn stage, like I loved nursing them to sleep and they kind of, they co-slept in a... Um, like a cot thing attached to the side of my bed, like a sidecar. Mm-hmm. And and that was wonderful and it worked. But there became a time when I was like, I do not want to be the thing putting you to sleep. Like I yeah. am at my limit, you know? And exactly. so that's when it shifted for me. And for me, it was around four months or so with each of the boys where I'm like, okay, I'm going to move them out into their own rooms now to be more independent sleepers. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for those who are – in a transition or like who are looking to start forming independent sleep habits, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, first we have to sort of think about why would we even want to create more independence with sleep, right? And so I already mentioned one reason, which is, you know, because a specific habit isn't working for you anymore. It's become unsustainable. Or like you said, I'm a second time parent and I know what happened last time and I kind of want to prevent that or get ahead of it uh, this time. Yeah, I'm being um, set up. I know. It. I <laughs> <laughs> no, this is why this. So Erica, this is exactly why I'm certified, certified in newborn sleep. 
Uh, and a lot of my newborn sleep clients are actually returning parents. So they work with me with their older child when they were a little bit older as a baby. And they're like, I want to get ahead of this next time. I want to work with you when my baby first arrives. And even sometimes yeah. we set up a plan in pregnancy, right? That we can start to implement, I you know, not, not in the first couple of weeks, because that's just survival, but maybe by week three, you know, we're starting to implement some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, totally hear you on that. So basically, you know, there's a point at which um, something has become unsustainable. But also the other reason is maybe you're noticing that whatever conditions you created at bedtime, which involved you helping your baby to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. So you're in the picture, you're rocking, nursing, whatever it is. It seems as though that baby is expecting that to happen every time they stir through a lighter period of sleep during the night, right? So all babies stir through these light and deep periods of sleep, And around the three to four month mark, they start to do this in very set patterns Mm -hmm. and they start to, you know, a little bit more ask for that help every time they stir through that light period of sleep. So this- You're speaking to (laughs) my experience with our first son. I like, it still makes me like cringe thinking about it. I nursed him to sleep and and or rocked him and or like all the things that involved me. And this child woke up every 45 minutes after the four-month sleep regression. Every 45 minutes. And I was ready to lose my mind. We tolerated it or like I tried to work with it thinking, oh, like, you know, he'll grow out of this. It's a sleep regression. Like it will pass. He'll grow out of it. And I tolerated it. And like, you know, for six and a half, like to six and a half or seven months. And then I was just like, I can't. I'm a zombie. Like this isn't good for anybody. You know, we we were like co-sleeping, but it wasn't a choice I was consciously making. We were co-sleeping because it was a means of survival. Neither one of us particularly wanted to be co-sleeping, you know, and it was just a nightmare. Like it it was, it got so bad. So I'm hearing you on this whole (laughs) waking up every 45 minutes. Like you could pretty much like time it within 45 minutes to an hour. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like what? what my baby's broken like what like what is going on here you know he wasn't we just didn't have really great um like understanding of these sleep habits at the time yeah and and I told my sympathies completely um and with my oldest Sophia for us it was the exercise ball so we were bouncing on that thing until we had headaches and backaches and had to repeat that every 45 minutes overnight. So I'm right there with you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so basically what can happen is that this is resulting in these very frequent wakings overnight. Sometimes, like you said, every 45 to 60 minutes, every hour, hour and a half, that's exhausting. And the same is true of naps, right? So we're getting really short naps for the same reason. By the way, I should mention that not everyone is, every little one is like this, right? There are those babies who can be completely assisted to sleep and they continue to sleep well throughout the night and throughout nap time. I call those more like the magical unicorn babies, but <laughs> right? you, you, you might have one of those. And so I want to, you know, <laughs> honor your experience as well. Yes. Little ones can be like that as well. Um, but, you know, wanting to build in more independence does not necessarily mean, like I said before, that you want to drop overnight feedings necessarily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or get baby to sleep 
entirely through the night. It might just simply mean that you want to help your little ones settle on their own at bedtime so that they're way more likely to be able to do that over and over and over again over the night so that the entire family (laughs) gets some more sleep. Mm -hmm. And so that may still mean that they're feeding overnight, but they're taking that nice full feed going right back down. And also all of that sleep work and effort that you were doing before is going to go way down right? So the effort that you were putting in before goes way, way down. Um, And so in terms of your question about helping that little one to become a more independent sleeper, before we even think about helping them to learn to do this on their own, we also have to ask ourselves, have I set up the right environment? Have I set up the right sleep hygiene and habits for them overall? So, you know, for example, do they have a calming, quiet, consistent environment for them to sleep in? Do they have a safe place to sleep in? Do they have a consistent routine um, from day to day? Obviously, with that flexibility that we talked about before, especially when mm-hmm. little ones are very little or you've got you know older siblings running around. Those factors are really huge in helping to develop more independence. And then once all of that's in place, right? So I do this in a very step-by-step way. With of the course. I work course. with, we've got to make sure all those foundations are in place because once we've set all of that up, the independence piece becomes much more, e- you know, easily achieved. And to be honest with you, for some families, even setting up the foundations, it's almost like independence just falls into place. Mm. Um, and I love it when that happens. That's very lovely. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but a lot of times babies were just craving that, you know, the great overall conditions for sleep. And then the independence piece just seems to happen um, really, you know, easily and quickly. Um, That's interesting. So would that be mm-hmm. like dark room, n- noise machine, um, bedtime routine, like their milk and then a story, some calm time in the room are like those are the types of things that you're you're describing? That's right. Yeah, okay. those are like the conditions, right? And so mm-hmm. I'll go through, you know, all the things that you just mentioned a lot and lots of other conditions as well to make sure that all of that works really, really well for that particular baby. And so, like I said, for some babies, again, it doesn't happen for all of them, but for some babies, you set all of that up in a way that makes them feel nice and relaxed and that they can actually easily transition from that period of wakefulness to the period of rest and sleep. And it just sort of falls into place. So it doesn't feel like you have to put a lot of effort into making that happen. Now, that's not true of every little baby, but that is true for some. And so it really is worthwhile to spend some time setting up that right environment and the quote unquote sleep schedule or the timing that works well and a consistent routine and all the rest of it before we even kind of venture onwards to this independent sleep piece. But once we get there, it's really just about choosing something again, that you feel comfortable with to start to move away from providing that specific help for your little one to sleep, Mm, right? And so mm -hmm. again, there's hundreds of ways um, of doing this, but really the way that I love to do this is build on what you're already doing, Um, build on your instincts and create what I call more time, space, and opportunity for independent sleep. It's really around the part of creating more time, space, and opportunity that helps a little one learn to fall asleep independently. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I know that one of the things that um, our pediatrician told me was like at the first stir of baby, you don't have to get up and run to their room, (laughs) you know? And I was like, that feels like such permission as a first time parent, especially for moms who might struggle with some postpartum anxiety and are very hyper vigilant about baby. Um, Though that leaving them 
you know, it's protesting. Obviously, if they're like really screaming and having a hard time, you you know, your tolerance or your like how you're doing that might be different. But um, I didn't even think to like wait a couple minutes and see if maybe they settled <laughs> themselves like that. It just wasn't a thing in my mind. And we started to even just give a little bit of space and, and you know, wait a couple of minutes to see. And if it amped up, it's like, oh, okay, this is a real need. We're going in. Or it would taper off in just a couple of minutes. And we're like, oh, that was just a little rollover or a little wake and maybe some gas. And then off they went, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So especially, like you said, as, as first, first time parents, you're sort of, and, and also because when you're first um, having baby home for sleep, you know, they might be sleeping right beside you. And so you're picking up on every little movement and sound that they make, but babies are notoriously loud sleepers, especially yeah. early on. And the other thing is too, is, you know, it, it requires a bit of a change in our mindset when we start doing this work to create more independence because, you know, we're sort of taught in, or we teach ourselves maybe in the newborn period that every little stir, like you said, um, it's something that we need to do something about. And yes. then when we change our mindset to creating more independence, we kind of have to think about these little stirs and noises and movements as all being really productive, right? So when mm-hmm. I first start, start working with clients to create more independence, a lot of clients will say, well, baby was all over the place in their crib last night. Like, is that normal? Um, and it's completely normal, right? When a little one is more independent, they're not kind of just solidly sleeping like a rock all night. This is why that, you know, quote unquote, sleeping through the night, that phrase is a little bit of a misnomer because none of us really does. Mm. Um, Of course, they're going to move around and shift around as they stir through light periods of sleep. And if they're able to do that on their own, well, then they've just done that very confidently and comfortably. And that's something to celebrate. So you're going to see movement. um, You're going to hear a little bit of noise. And all of that is okay. It doesn't need to be responded to right away. Um, you know, certainly if, if a little one, like you said, is really upset and that's something that you want to respond to that aligns with your values for attending to them, then of course. But we don't really um, necessarily need to respond to all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that when I became a second-time parent, like I just had such a different I don't know, understanding, tolerance. Like you just have that experience of having been through it before that I you can almost distinguish the different types of cries. <laughs> I'm sure yes. that that's a thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And so I was just like, oh, you know, like I I within myself as a mom had more tolerance for the range of cries, if that makes sense. Right. So obviously, um, if there was like a really pain cry or something that I knew was really distinctly unsettling, I would not hesitate to go in. Mm-hmm. But I also had a bit of a tolerance for like protesting cries, like I'm trying to like yeah. pass gas, like, you know, moans and groans, certain things that I knew baby could do on their own potentially. And again, this comes down to age and everyone else's preferences and and what in terms of how you guys want to structure it. But I just had that experience the second time around, I feel like. And then by the time you have a third kid, which I have three young boys, it's like baby really like, I don't know, even that much more, you're just like your hands are full and baby is just kind of forced to like hang out until you have a free hand to do the things you need to do. And uh and yeah, so like my my third is like the chillest because he's just <laughs> he's just been along for the ride this whole time, and he he's actually such a really chill baby anyway. So he's always just kind of been that way. But 
Yeah, yeah. I've heard that about the third child. Yeah. So that may- <laughs> that totally, <laughs> totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally along for the ride. But yeah, so we talk about like tools to to help with independent sleep. Mm-hmm. What might some of those tools look like? So I had mentioned things like Ipasi, things like a lovey. What other kinds of, of tools might parents try to help build or foster that independent sleep? Yeah, so actually they don't need anything specific, right? So if you just think about us as adults when we get into bed at night, right, there's nothing really specific that we need to fall asleep. We have our, maybe not as new parents that are sleep deprived, but we typically (laughs) have our, you know, our own bedtime routine, right? So there's things that you do before you go to bed that help you understand that sleep is next and that help you relax. Um, Then you get into your bed and you fall into your first stage of sleep, right? And so it's the same thing that we're trying to recreate for babies. And so it's important to understand they don't actually need anything specific. So I know a lot of, um, so for example, breastfeeding parents, they'll ask me like, I, I, do I need to use a pacifier? That This baby's never taken one. They hate the pacifier. You absolutely do not need to use that. Um, and in fact, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship to the pacifier, just to be honest with you. Oh, really? I'm so interested. (laughs) Yeah. So what I have seen happen, I mean, it can't like, you know, again, take this with a grain of salt, because if it works for you, then do not fix what's not broken. But exactly. uh, (laughs) And certainly, you know, again, um, I'm a mom who went through colic. And uh, I totally understand that when a little one is inconsolable and they need something to help them calm, you know, and a pacifier is working for you, then use it, right? I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But when it comes to sleep and when we are trying to build more independence, what can happen is that we are getting into this habit overnight of replacing the pacifier over and over again to extend sleep, right? Mm. And so that's one of the ways where the pacifier can start to work against us. Um, And sometimes this might be, I just do it once a night and I'm okay with that. And hey, in that situation, that's totally fine if that works for you. Mm -hmm. But it can quickly turn into, I'm doing this, you know, 10, 15, 20 times overnight, right? And so that's not really creating independence. It's just another um, sort of form of like kind of crutch almost I see yeah 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 I see what you're saying I totally see what you're saying and it was like this used to happen with my middle son he took a pacifier and it was a godsend for us (laughs) it was it was wonderful yeah um but at seven months old I think I'm pretty sure it was seven months old it's ingrained in my mind at seven months old anyways um we saw him reach around the crib and grab his own passy and put it back in his mouth. And like, you know, (laughs) heaven opened up that day. Like it it was like magical. And then from then on, he had it down and we'd have like five passies in the crib always within his reach. And so, but I can see up until that time that he could do that. Yes. It was it was us kind of getting up to replace it, or yeah, and yeah. or when we had to, he actually got hand, foot, mouth, and that's oh. why he started to refuse his passy around eighteen months, I think it was, which was a good, I guess, in the sense that it dropped the passy, but he went through a sleep regression, obviously, because he was used to having it. Um, so we went through our own little sleep regression during that time, and he was sick because he had hand, foot, mouth, but. Um, but yeah, so I can see what you're saying in that that is that is a, a tool or can become something that is a crutch or relied upon and not truly just that that independent sleep, as you're saying. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got it right. So, I mean, if it works for you, then great. But if it's starting to create some issues overnight, because, you know, if you think about it, when we create independence, what we want to do is set up, we can set up conditions that baby expects, right? So for example, that dark room or the noise machine, right? So if we kind of fall asleep in the dark room and we fall asleep listening to some continuous noise, like the sound of the ocean or white noise, whatever it may be, and then we stir in the middle of the night and those conditions are the same, it's dark and we still hear that noise, we're way more likely to go right back to sleep, right? Mm. But those conditions that we set up don't rely on us as parents being there mm-hmm. or doing anything, right? So if you kind of think about it like that, it's creating conditions that don't rely on you, on your involvement. Hmm. It's so interesting because like what I'm hearing is that like some people put their babies down in their crib and they literally just go to sleep. And I'm still like, wow, this is a thing that happens. You know, like why didn't I know about this when I had three babies? Like this is crazy. But that's that's so like I'm kind of mind boggled that that happens. I don't You're not alone with that, Erica, because I have so many people who I start working at them and they say, but is this really going to work for my baby? Because my baby does X, Y, Z and they have this specific circumstance or this thing that, you know, that we've been doing. And are you sure that this is going to work? Um, and every, almost every parent is kind of amazed when it actually does and just was totally in disbelief. <laughs> so. Well, and I feel like, like, I really feel like we are sold an image that baby needs all of these tools to sleep. If I'm just going to yes. be like super, you know, frank about totally. it. Like when yeah. I think about it, I'm like, oh, but don't they need a swaddle? And don't they need a vibrating bassinet? And don't they need this and this and this? <laughs> and actually, like as I'm thinking about it, as we're talking, like these are all marketing strategies. And a lot of them backfire because like they are the things that uh, like – we have to transition baby away from that at some point or, you know, it's not safe for them to be sleeping in like a bouncy overnight or things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, wait a minute, I don't need all of these things for my <laughs> no. baby to sleep. Like, wow, that's crazy. No. And then you can celebrate and get those things out of the house, right? Like I remember when we were finally able to deflate that darn exercise ball and kick it right out of the house. And then, Oh, yeah. that must've been a celebration. Celebration. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Even though our backs still ache from six and a half years ago doing that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So yeah. I can really see how you're saying like so much of the the work is in setting the tone of the routine and the environment that the conditions yeah. are right to sleep because you're not going into a zone of using all of these tools or doing the work for the baby in a way. You are setting it up so that it, it, it cues baby that now it's time for sleep is what I'm understanding. Yeah, exactly. And this is another reason I love working with newborns because at this stage, right, in the newborn stage. So when I say newborn, by the way, I just I mean the first three months of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so little ones, like even in the second month, when you start to create these conditions that we know work for them, they are totally accepting of being put down awake. Um, again, that's not everybody's experience, but lots of little ones in the newborn stage when you set up, you know, the timing that works well for them, the environment that works well for them, um, the routine that's consistent and works well for them. They are totally accepting of that. Um, Hmm. It's just really amazing and fascinating to see. That is really fascinating. And you know what? As a first time mom, I don't even know that I would have known to do that. Right. Me too. Like to put baby down awake. Like I wouldn't have known that. So can we, before we wrap up, kind of like 
maybe rapid fire a few tips off for like newer moms or moms with those newborn stage? Because it sounds like paying attention to the awake windows is a big one, like mm-hmm. the time baby should be awake for. Trying to put baby down before they are overtired is another big one that mm-hmm. I've heard you say. Yeah. Um, putting baby down awake. Yeah. So put down, be, put baby down awake anytime that they're accepting of this, right? So in the newborn stage, this is really just practicing. We're practicing okay. with it as many times that they will accept and, you know, trying to shift our mindset away from, I have to do something to get this baby to sleep versus I'm going to put them down awake. It's the right time. It's the right conditions. Let's see what happens and give them mm. a little bit of time and space. Right. Yeah. Um, so do that anytime that you feel, you know, motivated to do that or a little bit ambitious. Um, but then just know that it's all about practice in the newborn stage. We're not forcing them to do anything. We're not ex- really even necessarily expecting them to do anything. We're just giving them the time, space, and opportunity. So yeah, so lay them down awake anytime that you feel encouraged to do so. Um, Some great times to do that might be the first nap of the day. So the first nap of the day holds your best chance for success because the homeostatic sleep pressures or our drive to sleep is incredibly high before the first nap of the day. And so often that's the first one that falls into place. So that might be a time that you try this. You could certainly try it at bedtime too, but it might not go as easily as nap one. So you have to sort of experiment. The other thing in the newborn period is we have to remember we want our baby to be as well rested as possible during the day so that we're maximizing nighttime sleep as soon as we possibly can for the whole family, right? Because for most adults, I mean, even when you're a parent, you would prefer to get all your your hours of sleep at night rather than having to nap, you know, make up for it and napping in the day. So let's try to maximize our nighttime sleep as a family. And we do that by helping baby to be as well rested in the day as possible. So in the beginning, when they're really, really tiny babies, it's totally fine um, to pop them into the carrier or to let them sleep on your chest, you know, obviously as safely as possible, um, to go for walks, to help them sleep that way on the go so that they're well rested. And you can work on some more independence at bedtime more easily if they're well rested in the day, right? So mm-hmm. not to be so concerned about getting them in the bassinet or the crib all day long. You can assist them. You can do the on the go so they're well rested focus on bedtime. And then once that's going well, maybe you can add a nap or two of the day to create more independence there, but you don't have to, right? So Mm. the fascinating thing is babies don't get confused by that. You can ask them to be independent at bedtime, not at nap time. They don't get confused. So Mm. you can still have on the go naps, flexibility in the day and some more independence at night and you'll be totally fine. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like I think about my third baby being like that way on the go throughout the day would nap. And like even now he's my only baby because of like the flexibility and the shift in my own mindset really around his sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I let go of some of the sort of rigid expectations I had for his sleep. And I was incredibly floored by how truly flexible and adaptive kids and babies are, right? Like (laughs) now he will crawl up in my lap when his brothers like go out on the weekends and it's close to his nap time, he'll come crawl up in my lap. He sucks on his arm. Like that's how he soothes. He like sucks on his arm. And like before I know it, he's flopped over and he's passed out. And I'm just like, since when does he just put himself to sleep on my lap wherever we are? Like, how is that a thing? But I think that so much of what you're describing has a lot to do with our own shift in mindset 
as parents, right? Yes. Like yeah. I don't have to do the work for my baby if I'm putting them down awake. Like how do I how do I kind of give enough of a buffer to allow for the independence with the right conditions, right? Like with the right yes. setup and knowing that it's okay. I can let them wiggle around and maybe struggle a little bit if that's something I can tolerate and something that's okay for them, you know, and and give them the ability to try to learn on their own. Yeah. And you brought up a really good point, Erica, because, you know, our perception and perspective of our baby's sleep also affects how they sleep, right? Because, you know, the way that you perceive your little one's sleep, if you think, oh gosh, this is terrible, or if you think, oh, this is pretty okay and manageable, that then dictates what you do about sleep, which then obviously dictates how they sleep, right? So I always yeah. find that fascinating because you could have two families with the, you know, babies around the same age, similar sleep circumstances, and their perception is completely different or can be completely different of how their babies are sleeping. Yeah. And I would say that my my tolerance and my perspective grew with each child as well, I would say. Yes. Also, yeah. even just in the mindset of knowing that oh, this is just a stage or, you know, mm-hmm. sleep is always changing or it never lasts as long as you think it will. Like certain things with my first that just felt like they would never end. With my second, I realized like my my firstborn had turned two and I'm having another baby. Like things do move and they do change and you're not stuck in this phase forever either, right? So um, yeah, just growing your own perspective and challenging your own mindset. So, so interesting. It's so fascinating. I feel like we were just kind of getting to the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure that there's so much more that we can talk about, but you are a powerhouse. You got lots of different things on the go. Can you share where you hang out online? What kind of resources you might have if parents are looking to to find you and connect with you? Yes. Yeah. So um, my business is Baby Sleep Love. That is my main business. This is where I help families of children between zero to six years old get more sleep. And I am at babysleeplove, all one word, dot com, and also at babysleeplove on Instagram and on Facebook. I do have a really um, great guide that you can get from my website that's all about the wake windows that we talked about, the wake Mm -hmm. windows and sleep schedules and lengthening naps and all of that. Um, So that is available through my website as well. And... um, and yeah, and also, like I mentioned before, um, Dr. Dina Kulik, who's a pediatrician, and I have started another um, program related to sleep called the Parent Playbook. And we have an online sleep program that you can get through parentplaybookoneword.co as well. I love that. I love that you're making these resources accessible to parents. And I was on your website. Your guide is like super affordable, like the price of a latte kind of thing for (laughs) such valuable information that, you know, otherwise we'd be digging and trying to siphon through and, and understand for ourselves. So I love that you make those resources affordable and available to families. And thank you so much for joining us today. You've been so wonderful to talk with and can't wait to have you back. Now we need to do a setting up the environment <laughs> episode because really, yeah. you know, we need to dive deep into that. But I appreciate you. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And we'll be sure to have you back, Rosalie. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. 
If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. 